0: Welcome to Grace, everybody. It's great to see you this weekend, and thanks for joining us. Welcome, everybody watching online, too. Thanks for uh, being a part of uh, this weekend. Encourage you guys, this. uh this Grace Race, if you can do it, it's a blast, and it's a great time, a great cause, and you it's not too late to train. I was out training the other day for it, and my headphones wouldn't work, so I stopped and went home and had a pizza, but <coughs> um, I know people who can run this thing, and I'm going to be there encouraging them, and probably actually will run it myself, too, but it is a lot of fun. It really is. It's kind of an event, and uh, the whole community comes out for it. Really, if you can do it, do it, and It's a a great time. And the packing event, too, is just as much fun, and for some even more. It's an absolute blast to do it. So if you can do those things, do it. If you haven't done it before, you won't regret it, and uh, it's a a fun way to spend spend that weekend. So we're in a series right now uh, called Life Intentionally, and uh, we're talking about uh, taking experiences and translating them into habits, which become foundational pieces of our lives. And so uh, in April, we did a series called It's What We Do, and we introduced kind of the idea of trying some of these habits, reading your Bible on a regular basis, uh, coming to church, praying on a regular basis, uh, fasting, having a Sabbath, kind of a quiet time uh, with God, and we said, give these things a shot, and, and we kind of said, if you do it, you'll find out that they really will move you forward spiritually in a really powerful way, and a bunch of us, ten of us did that, and now we're just saying, what if we turn that into habits? Uh, what, what if we brought that forward and it was kind of this integral part of our life? And uh, based off of those habits, it allowed us to have spiritual health and and we could grow in the Lord more and more. And so that's the idea of, of this uh, this conversation we're having here for the next few weeks. We're using the, this phrase as a foundation for those habits. So know it, live it, give it away. This little phrase is a big deal of grace. So. Uh, it's on our walls at all of our campuses, even uh, at different churches across the world. And and if you've come into grace, if you've gone through discovery and stuff like that, uh, if you haven't, I encourage you to. But if you haven't, then you've been introduced to this idea of know it, live it, give it away. We said that it is the story of Jesus or what the Bible calls the gospel. So that means that we want to know the the story of Jesus. We want to live it. We want to give it away. Last weekend, we talked about, kind of leaned into that know it part a little bit. And we said, that's the Bible. And we said, you can't know God if you don't know the Bible. Uh, The Bible is inspired by God in part so that we can know him. It's where he most clearly reveals himself to us. So the reason that we read our Bible on a regular basis, the reason that we are under the consistent teaching of God's Word is how we kind of say it. The reason we would pay attention to the Bible is because it's through the Bible that we know it, that we know the story of Jesus, the heart and the mind of Jesus, and we are able to know Him and interact with Him and then connect with Him. So that's, that's why we do that and why that's such a high priority. Uh, this weekend, I want to lean into the live it idea, the live it idea, and so once I know it... Then I begin to live it. And living it is this idea that I, I learn God's word and I, I understand what Jesus says and what he wants, how he directs his people. And then I bring that into my life and, it, and, and I live that out <clears throat> in real time with other followers uh, of Jesus Christ. So when you, when you get to know the Bible, it's a fascinating thing, um, especially the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, we call it. Uh, as you get to know the second part of the Bible, what you're going to to be introduced to first is Jesus, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you just, you learn about Jesus, his life, his teachings, his word, his example, and you're getting to know it there, right? And that hangs out, Jesus hangs out a little bit through the book of Acts as well. And then you get to know Jesus. And then the other big thing you get to know in the Bible is what Jesus wants us to do. And that's the give it away stuff. We'll talk about that next weekend. So he wants us to live a certain way and proclaim his gospel is the way the bible would say it or tell other people about who jesus is and what he's like and how to respond to him in the middle of all of that when you're reading the new testament the bulk of the new testament is jesus and the apostles teaching us how to live it a massive part of the, of the New Testament is the Bible teaching us how to live with each other and how to interact with each other and how to model Christ to each other. Jesus even leans into this. A guy one time asked him, he said, hey, what's the most important thing that I should know? And Jesus says, here it is. I want you to, to know the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The byproduct of knowing God is that you will love people. And so many of the apostles, what they're writing about, they they do explain Jesus more, and they certainly explain the church more, and those things are equally as important. But there's this big section in there where they're like, you guys should love each other this way if you're the people of God. You should forgive each other this way. You should talk to each other this way. You should live in this community in a different way. And as you do that, it kind of testifies or gives witness that you are actually the, the people Now, this is a big deal, because if I was going to take a a survey real quick and and say, hey, what's the hardest part about following Jesus? Most of us would say it's working with Jesus' followers, right? So memorizing the Bible is not that big of a deal. Like, if you really concentrate on it, you can do it and get the information out of it. Even giving it away, it's not that difficult to tell somebody about something you're excited about, right? But the live it part, if I said, hey, how many people, don't raise your hands and certainly don't point, that's never nice. But if I said, how many people have been hurt by somebody else in the church? How many people grew up in church and left their own church because somebody there wounded them? How many people have ever looked at a spiritual leader, a pastor, or somebody like that, and, and found out, they're not who I thought they were? See? It's the live-it stuff that, that causes the most pain and the most frustration and the most tension And yet God puts the most emphasis on it in some ways. And he would look and say, no, no, no. I want my people kind of smashed together. I want you living life with each other. I want you sharing your life with each other and allowing somebody else to share their life with you. And the tension or the friction that that causes sometimes is actually part of the refining process that I want you to go through. Now, part of how I know this is how, Jesus started the church. So it's fascinating. When when we know the day the church was started, right? So the church is not a man made idea. So it's not like the Pope's idea or Pastor Jeff's idea, whoever. The church is Jesus's idea. And he began the church and actually set it up the way it's supposed to be set up. So Grace Church is a local church and God set it up that way. It has spiritual leaders in it. That's all from the Bible. The reason we gather together is because God tells us to. The reason that um, somebody teaches up front is because God set it up that way. The reason we do music is God says, you should sing music to me. So all of this is, is the church, right? It's all God's idea, and that's just trying to play the Bible out. But it's fascinating how Jesus actually started the church and the elements that he wove into it. So Acts chapter 2, if you've got a Bible, grab it and go to Acts chapter 2. If you want to use the the Bibles and the chairs there, it's page seven hundred and fifty eight in those Bibles, Acts chapter two, page seven hundred fifty eight. Or all this is on the app. If you want to use that, go to uh, the App Store it's Grace Church Thirty if you want to get the app. But Acts chapter two is the story of God starting the church, right? So the disciples, Jesus has gone back to heaven. The disciples are kind of here. They're like, now what do we do? Jesus had promised them that the Holy Spirit would come and help them live this life. Jesus had called them to and build the church. So Acts chapter two is the account of the Holy Spirit like showing up and beginning that process. So they're hanging out, the Holy Spirit comes down on them and like this this one, one time kind of supernatural way he shows up with them and indwells them and and uh, kind of be, bursts the church out of them now it 's fascinating after he connects with the disciples. Then they go out and they start proclaiming who Jesus is. And it's fascinating what the Bible says, who they proclaim that to. Verse 5, chapter 2 of Acts says this. Now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from uh, every nation under heaven. This is, this is important. Ready? So. Most of the early disciples were all Jewish converts. And the Jews had a holiday there in Jerusalem, their holy city, called the the, the Feast of the Pentecost. And people from every nation, Jewish followers of, of, of God, had gathered there for the Feast of the Pentecost. And so we say that the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came, comes down. He empowers the original disciples. One of them, a guy named Peter, goes out and preaches this sermon to God fearing Jews. And what he says to these Jews is, he says, Listen, we found the one true Messiah. His name is Jesus. You should follow him as your Lord and God. Okay? So he preaches this sermon. Now, what was weird was this they preached in what the Bible calls tongues. Peter was preaching in his original, his heart language, and people were hearing it in their heart language. So it'd be like me speaking English, and you could hear me, you're Chinese, and you hear it Mandarin. I speak English, you hear my English words in Portuguese. I speak English, you hear my English words in, in Spanish. And the Bible says it amazed all these people, because they were like, they're Galileans, how is this all, how, how do we understand this? They're speaking their native tongue, but we're hearing it in ours, and God had done this miracle to proclaim who he was. Now, this is what happened. Of those God-fearing Jews from all of these different countries under heaven, the Bible says something incredible happened. The Bible says those those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 of them were added to the number that day. Of those God-fearing Jews, about 3,000 of them were added to the church. They believe that Jesus was God. And they were from every nation under heaven. In fact, there's a list of about 10 of those nations there in the Bible if you want to read that, okay? And they were the original church, the very first people empowered and dwelt by the Holy Spirit that became what we call the church, right? Now, if I was trying to think of a way to start something brand new that was blowing up every paradigm that people had ever heard, ever heard of and was hard to explain, I could not think of a more complicated way to do it than this. I sent God an email, asked him to explain it, I'm waiting for his response. This is the weirdest way possible to start the church. You're starting it with 3,000 people from every nation under heaven. 3,000 people with different customs, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different understandings. They don't even speak the same language. And God looks and says, I'm going to start my church by taking these 3,000 people and smashing them together. Into the most difficult set of circumstances so that they can form and become one person and be unified as my church for my cause. It's crazy. All these cultural backgrounds, let me give you an example of this. In in the western world we say this, we say you should accept Jesus into your heart, right? Accept Jesus in your heart. Or if I was telling you I loved you, I might say I love you with my whole heart. Or if you dumped me, that never happened to me but just if it ever happened to you, like if you got dumped, you might say my heart was broken, right? Because in the western world, when we think about the heart, we think about it as being the place that the soul resides. It's just how we think. So we think my emotions my soul my spirituality comes from the heart if we were in the philippines i would say to you you should accept jesus into your liver right because in that part of the eastern culture they believe the soul resides in the liver so they would say jesus lives in my liver or they might look at you and they may be like hey baby I love you with all of my liver, right? That's that's how they would talk because they would think differently. They mean the exact same thing, but they would think differently. So you have these, these cultural differences. You have the way that you view things spiritually. We assign spirituality to certain things. Let me give you an example of this. In Haiti, that a culture that has a lot of voodoo in it, they believe that frogs have a spirituality to them, right? And so they believe that frogs are where demons would possess and live in frogs. So when I was in Haiti a few years ago, I found a frog, and there were kids around, and I thought this would be fun. So I started chasing the kids around with a frog, and I didn't know it was demons. And possessed. It was just freaking these kids out. So the next day I stood up in church and I'm telling this story to the church I'm preaching, and nobody laughed. Nobody laughed at all. And afterwards, I asked the missionary, I was like, hey, do Haitians not laugh in church? He goes, no, they laugh a lot. I was like, I don't get it, because that frog joke kills. I can't, I don't understand it. He's like, yeah, you were telling the parents you were chasing their children with a demon. Like, like universally, that's not funny to a parent, you know, kind of a thing. So all, all of these things are in these 3,000 people. All of these backgrounds, all of these influences, all of these differences, and they don't even understand each other unless God intervenes. Why would you start the church that way? What was God thinking? Why is that important to him? Because he did it on purpose. He could have started with his homogenized group, but he didn't. He chose to do it in such a way that actually caused a friction as people were coming together, why would he do that? Why did he want them to live it in that way? I think it's fascinating, and when you think this through, I think part of the ways that we, uh, the part of the clues that we find about this is in actually in the book of 1 Peter. So Peter was the guy who stood up and preached that sermon, right? And then later on, some of those 3,000 people, they're going out, they're telling people about Jesus trying to be the church, and he wrote letters to them to explain what had happened to them and how they were supposed to be living together and this is one of his letters here in first peter chapter two he's writing to those people and he says this he says but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation god's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light once you were not a people But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter writes to them, he says, guys, hey, listen, something has happened to you. You individually kind of were not anything. But now, because you've accepted Christ, you have become something. You have become a people, and not just any people. You have become the people of God. You've been called out for that. The word church is actually a Greek word. and you, In Greek, you pronounce it ekklesia, and it means called out ones. You have been called out. Of all the people, of all the nations under heaven, when Peter spoke to you through my Holy Holy Spirit, I connected with you and you were called out of that group of God-fearing Jews. You 3,000 people, you were no longer tied to that, now you are tied directly to me. You have become the people of God, the church, and you have a new authority, a new direction, a new goal in your life. The Apostle Paul would say it this way, you have this whole new identity. You once were identified this way by your backgrounds and your upbringings and your culture and your languages and your customs and your ethnicities. All that's erased because now you are this new thing, this people of God. He says it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He says, So in Christ, you are all now children of God through faith. So you've changed. You are something different than you've ever been before. And you're different than the world around you. All of you who are baptized in Christ have, uh, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Paul's speaking to identity here. And he says, guys, listen. You have been changed. The old is gone. A new thing has come. Once you were not a people, but now you're this different, unique group of people called the church. And that new identity is what drives you and define you. In the church, in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek or or Gentile, right? So in, in the ancient world, if you were born a Jew, you were raised a Jew, you lived as a Jew, you died as a Jew, you taught your kids to be Jewish, You didn't choose your religion, you were born into it and it defined every aspect of you. Same thing with a Gentile. A Gentile is just somebody who's not a Jew. So you might be a different religion or you may be godless, but when you're born a Gentile, you're raised a Gentile, you live as a Gentile, you teach your kids to be Gentiles, being a Gentile becomes who you are. Paul says not anymore, those ties are broken in Christ. Now you are the people of God. Same thing with being a slave or free. In the ancient world, if you're born into slavery... That is your identity. You're born a slave. You're raised a slave. You live as a slave. Your children might be slaves. Your worldview is that a worldview of slavery. Your, your, your ideas and your values are poverty-driven, not prosperity-driven. It defines you. Same thing with being free. I'm born a free man. I'm born to privilege. I'm born to wealth. The most important thing to me is my family's last name because my grandfather started this company and my dad grew it. Now I'm going to take it over and that's the way that it works. And so I live from a place of freedom and position and power because I was born into it, raised in it, lived it, and passed it on to my children. He even goes so far and he says, there's not even male or female. He's not talking about sexual identity issues here. He's talking about cultural gender issues here. So in the ancient world, if you were a woman, that identified every aspect of who you were. Because in the ancient world, if you were a woman, you were not daddy's princess, you were daddy's problem you were considered a liability. You were not valued. It's only, it's Christ who introduced kind of equal value for men and women. Well, how'd you meet your husband? I don't know, my dad gave him four goats and then I was married. That's how it worked. And you might've been wife number three or four or five. So you would've viewed the world that way. What can I do for Christ? How can I function? How do I live? Well, it's all tied to that same thing with being a male. If you were a male, you came at the world from a position of power, especially if you were a firstborn son. All power, all authority, all money passed through you. When your dad died, mom didn't take over the family business, the son did, and mom had to be in good connection with the son or he'd kick her out. See, All legality went through the men. And Paul says, when we come into Christ, all of this identity gets pushed away. I don't come in as a Jew knowing more about the Old Testament than the Gentile. I don't come in as a man who just disregards the women. I don't come in as a slave and I have no place in the body of Christ. Or a free man and I rule over everybody because I got the money. All of that is stripped away. And God says you come into Christ now as a new thing. You were not, there was no way for you to connect over here. There was no commonality. But now, there is a new singular identity, and it is Christ. And we come together. Jesus uses the words born again. It's as if my my old identity never even existed, and I am reborn into something new. Being the people of God, the children of God is the thing that identifies me and is the thing of which all the rest of my life flows together. And God says, that's the what I want. I actually want you guys to go through this process of dying to yourself. I, 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 want, you to, I want you to have to set aside the old I want you to die to it and be reborn in this. My people are not defined by the same things that the world is defined by. My people do not value the same things that the world around us values. My people don't live the same thing. There's a uniqueness to us. And that uniqueness is pressed out and replaced and refined as we live these values together. Because... Outside of Christ, you have no shot at living these values any better than this person who was raised a slave. Outside of Christ, you have no shot of of, of being like me any more than this male does or female does. And so I'm going to slam you together, strip you of your old self so that you become a new thing, so that my values, my heart, my mind become the defining factor of this group. Now, what are these values? Let me give you some examples of this. Like what? What are we talking about? Because in the Jewish culture, this is what... Because I tell you, man, it's a firstborn son. Let me tell you what I... No, that's that's what you were. It's not what you are. Now you're a new people... What do you value? Some things like this. Jesus would say stuff like this. Like forgiveness. These, this new group of people, part of what's going to mark you is that you're going to forgive each other as you have been forgiven. And you're going to come together together on purpose, and you're going to actually address and push those things into each other's life so that you can forgive at the same levels and with the same veracity that I have forgiven you. Now listen, outside of Christ, that's something you would never do. You know most people forgive each other like a five-year-old. Am I right? Sure they do. When I was about five years old, my sister was eight. She took my toy, so I punched her in the face. I think it kind of set the basis of our relationship a little bit. She still won't talk to me, right? And when I punched my sister in the face, because she took my toy, my mom came to me as a five-year-old. She said, Jeffaroo, how dare you punch your sister in the face? I said, she took my toy. And my mom said, looked at me, and she goes, you tell your sister what? You're sorry. So what did I do? You tell her, or I'm going to spank you. So I looked at my sister, and I go, Sorry. I had a very deep voice as a five-year-old. <laughs> five-year-old. <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean it. I didn't care about it. I didn't think about how bad I hurt my sister or what it meant to her to get punched in the face by her little brother. I was just trying to get my mom off the, my back and my sister out of my hair. You know, most of us still forgive like we're five-year-olds. Say you're sorry. Sorry. Jesus looks and says, actually, my people don't forgive like that. That's what you were, but now you're a people of God. How I want you to forgive is as you have been forgiven. I want you to to realize the depth of the pain that you have caused the people in your life. I want you to realize the depth of the rebellion and the statement you're making to your parents. I want you to look at your spouse and you say, sorry. All that's happening is his heart is becoming more and more callous towards you because everybody knows you're lying. But when you press into each other's lives and you understand the depth of what your actions actually did and how not only did you sin against God, but you sinned against his child and you actually forgive each other for the most devastating sins that can be committed, you're going to look like me. And you're going to be an example to each other and to the world around us of how I love and I am willing to forgive. That's what my people do. I want you guys, instead of saying, well, we did this where my dad always said, nope, all gone, stripped away. No Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, Jesus. Another example is generosity. Generosity. right? I want you guys to share with each other. The Bible says when the early church came together, that those who had possessions sold them and supported other Christ followers. Why would they do that? Why would they do These are strangers. They don't know each other. Why would they do that? Well, it's because they're now family in Christ. They're brothers and sisters. And, w- and what, if I, what if I accepted Jesus and my occupation was that of a prostitute? The Bible talks about several prostitutes that accepted Jesus and followed him. How do I feed myself now? What, what do I do for anything? What, what if I accepted Jesus and I, I own the strip joint My grandfather started it, my dad ran it, and now I'm taking over the family. How do I support my family suddenly? And Jesus was like, right, my people think of their possessions as mine, and so they would know as a father, and you have my possessions on loan to you, the thing I would want them spent on is my other children who have needs. There's no way that you just drop an income like that without me giving of myself for you. Now, that's not worldly generosity. Worldly generosity is just kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a moral form of entertainment. I will will give money if I get to do something that I have fun doing. That's worldly generosity. Or it's a way to pad your own ego. Well, if you name the building after me, like, I'm in. Or at least give me a plaque, I'm in. Well, that's not generosity at all, it's all self-serving. But suddenly, if I have to take from myself so that you can eat, that's what the Apostle Paul said. He goes, he says, I don't want you poor and them poor, I just want equality. If you're gonna have filet mignon and they're gonna go hungry, could you get by with hamburger so they have something Now listen, there's not another group of people on the planet that do that. There's not another group of people on the planet that would forgive this egregious sin that are motivated to do that, that would run toward the person who hurt them instead of away from them to cut them out of life. Only the people of God would do that. Patience is another thing, right? Patience, having patience. I used to think I was a very patient person I used to be so patient. I would go study the Bible. I knew it. I was studying at school. I study the Bible. I would learn something in the Bible, and then I would go home. This is before we had kids, and I would go home and I would think about what I studied, and I would fast on it until Heidi finished dinner, and, and I would I would fast. And Heidi would come home, and we'd have a long uninterrupted conversation about this passage of scripture, what it meant for us. And then we would pray together. Right? And then we would sleep on it that night. And then we'd wake up in the morning and have a nice quiet time with the Lord and each other. And then we would, we would try to put into practice what we learned from Jesus. I was the most patient person in the world. Then we had children. They ruin everything. They have taken everything from me. My time, my money, hope. It's all, it's all just gone, right? My, my children would never describe me as a patient person what happened? Well, suddenly I had to take what I knew in God's word. I actually had to live it. And it's actually hard to live it. In fact, I don't understand the depth of what patience actually is until I have to not only give it, but receive it from someone else. And God would say, right. I actually bring difficult people into your life on purpose because it teaches you, it shapes you, it molds you in an area like patience in a way that actually cannot happen if those people are not in your life. You'll know patience in your head, but you won't know it in real time and you'll certainly never have to work for it. But I, I liked my small group until that person showed up and now I can't stand them. Well, maybe they're there just for you. Well, we loved our group until that one difficult pain in the neck couple came. First of all, that hurts Heidi and I's feelings a little bit. <laughs> but maybe they're there because God wants to grow the group. See? And there's not another group of people on the planet that would welcome a difficult person into it and find joy in the process. Only the people of God would do that. And the list goes on and on. Selflessness is like that. Nobody teaches you to be selfless. But suddenly I got people around me that we're, we're trying to outserve each other instead of take from each other. Good, good deeds is like that. That's a big one. God says you, that good deeds, again, we do good deeds mostly to look good and feel good. God says, I don't want you to do that at all. My people don't do good, do good deeds to look good and feel good. My people do good deeds to bring glory to my name. In fact, you should do most of your good deeds in secret the Bible says. And we do the Grace Race and Feed My Starving Children, and that's all fun. It's a creative way to do it. It's a blast to do it. It's fine. But our hope, we don't stamp all that Grace Church. We do that good deed so that that hungry kid and wherever they are who is praying to a God, because the Bible says that nature itself reveals that there's God. That's why every human being knows instinctually that there's a God. So they're praying to some God out there. They don't yet know that his name is Jesus Christ. But when they pray in hunger and God hears them and activates his people and his people send food to that person to answer their prayer so that the God, Jesus Christ, is glorified, not so that Grace Church has a marketing tool. There's not, there's not a corporation on the planet that gives charity without branding it. But the people of God do it all the time. We're motivated differently. Where, where you value different things. We have a different set of habits. Why? Because of who we are. You want, once we were not a people. We were individuals that were products of our culture and upbringing. But now we're the people of God. We value things like this list. We care about this stuff because God cares about it. And we're the only people on the planet that would value it. Because we're the only people on the planet that believe that Jesus is God and we should try to translate him into our lives in every way possible. So God looks and he says, hey, now that you know that, live that. In fact, I want you to do this. You should get together and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You should involve yourself in each other's lives so that you're looking at each other and saying, hey, you know what? You said sorry to your wife. Did you actually grieve the sin that you brought into her life and the pain that you caused her? You took your plaque for your thousand bucks, and that's great that you got like a blanket out of it, whatever, but are you living generously with people who have no idea what you're doing or why you're doing it? You're, you're, I know you're patient at work. You kind of keep it together at work. The, man, the minute your husband walks in the room, snap goes his head. What about your closest neighbor? Why don't they ever get the best of yourself? And Jesus says, God says, listen, you you bring this out of each other. You gather together. Same writer says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together like some are in the habit of doing. You purposely get together together to spur one another on to love and good needs, to bring godliness out of each other because this is what the people of God do and this is how God says to do it. As I live it, what happens is this, as I live out the truth of God and I allow other people into my life and I share my life with them and they share their life with me, what happens is this, is the living it causes the me to become the we. It's no longer just me following Jesus Christ. Me having a personal spirituality. Me kind of creating my own version of God. But the we, the church, the body of Jesus, us corporately. So that when God when when God looks at his people, he says, I want you guys, I want you guys to take God's word to the ends of the earth. I want you guys to love and support the poor. I want you guys to forgive and care for each other, to be generous to each other, to make sure that there's equality with each other. I want you guys to pour into each other's life. As we do that individually, we start to love each other and we become the church, the called out ones. And it's by our love for one another that they will know we are Christ's disciples, the Bible says. And the church The physical representation of the heart and mind of God on the planet becomes a beacon and helps make Jesus make sense. But Jeff, it's hard and tiring. I think that's part of the point. Look at the way it started. What a bad idea. 3,000 people from every nation under earth. It is the friction, it is the tension, it is the selflessness, it is the sacrifice that mark us as the people of God, see? Now, this is where intentionality comes in because none of this is ever just gonna happen you don't accidentally stumble into biblical community and sharing your life with other people. You have to choose to do it. And the Bible is very clear that Christianity is a team sport. Your relationship with God is personal, but it's never private. It's never secret. There are, over, there are about 57 commands in the scripture that I cannot obey if I do not have other Christians in my life. How do I pray together? How do I bear each other's burdens? How, how do I rejoice with those who rejoice? How do I mourn with those who mourn? How do I confess my sins one to another? How, how do we gather together and have communion? How do we encourage one another? How do we sing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs to each other? How do we make music together? How do we sit under the, the, the direction of spiritual eldership or spiritual leadership? If I don't have other Christ followers in my life, I literally cannot obey the Bible. How do I get them in my life? I have to gather. I have to make that happen on purpose. I have to set aside the time and put in the energy and engage the process of being with other Christ followers. I cannot follow Jesus on my own and obey him. I can't. Watching online only without a community, just you and your phone somewhere. You can't follow Jesus on your own like that. It's a great supplement. It's great if you have a community that you're doing it with in your dorm room or on your naval ship or something like that, right? That's fine. But just you, you can't do it. It's fine if the kids are sick or if it's a bad weekend, but two out of five weekends is now the average church attendance. It's impossible. Would you let your kids miss two out of five games? Two out of five days at school? Would you miss two out of five weeks at work? I'll be back in a couple weeks. I've just been busy. <laughs> See? I hear Listen, I love you. I'm not trying to be a legalist but we do what we prioritize and we prioritize our identities. We do what we prioritize and we prioritize our identities. And if I get my identity from work, I never miss work. If I get my identity on an athletic field, I never miss practice. I get my identity in the classroom. I am there all the time. And if I get my identity from Christ, see, and I know we're busy, Jeff, the kids, listen, I got six kids. That card never plays with me. I'll just be honest with you. I know we're busy. But we make the things happen in our lives that are important to us. And God looks at us and says, Listen, it's important that you gather together. It's important that you share your life. It's important that you know people and they know you. It's how I structured it from the very beginning. It's not always easy. That's part of it. That's part of it. And as I lay aside my old identity and I pick up a new one and I am around other people who are also encouraging me and spurring me on to love and good deeds. I become the person God has called me to become. And when we do that individually, we become the church that God has called us to become. And we are the plan. I can't know it and not live it. I can't live it and not give it away. And so I'm making the time. I'm setting the priority. I'm involving myself, right? Because I am the child of God. So I think I would, I probably land this a couple ways. Here's the first one. It just... Are you living it? Like, are you in biblical community somewhere? And I tell you, for some of us who are new in our faith, um, like just getting to church and stuff like that is, is a lot, and it's great, and I'm proud of you for it. And so we're talking about the more and more stuff. Like, how do I grow deeper and deeper and deeper? And so this becomes kind of a next step for you. So looking and saying, where, where are a group of growing and mature Christians that are under or led by a spiritual leader? And how do I connect with them so I can you know, kind of figure out how to shake the Bible out, draw these things out of my life? Is that in your life? And if not, why not? And if it's a matter of like I'm new in my faith and I just haven't got that far yet, then great, That now you know your next step. If it's a matter of we used to do that, but then just double click on it. Right? Because we do what we care about. And God specifically says care about this. It's a big deal. Okay? Now, for some of you, you might say, well, I have Christian friends and we get together once in a while. And I think that's great. I really do. I do not think that all biblical community has to function within the organization of Grace Church. So if you have Christian friends and they don't come here, or, or maybe they do, but you guys get together on your own, you're not a part of the official thing, that is no big deal at all, right? If you don't know where to find biblical community... We have it organized at Grace. There's Life Group, there's Connect Group, there's Student Life Group, there's Collective, right? It's organized here. So we organize it so you can find it. That Our small groups are not the assimilation strategy for a big church. They are a part of us trying to play the Bible out. So just like we would worship, just like we would teach the Bible, just like we would get together and pray or give, we have groups, right? So if you don't know where to find it, it's here and you can get it here. Now let me say this. If you have it at another place or you think you do and say, I am getting together with some Christians, this is what I would do. I just double click on it. Because what you're looking for are relationships, ready? Here's the key, that spur you on to loving good deeds. And if the spurring you on to loving good deeds is missing, then you don't actually have what Jesus is talking about. Okay? So getting together in a group and sharing your feelings is not biblical community. That's group counseling. It's good, it's just not biblical community. Getting together and reading your fifth book on marriage is not biblical community. That's called a book club, right? And it's good. This is not biblical community. This is going to sound weird. Getting together and cranking through the Bible is not biblical community. That's getting together and cranking through the Bible. It's good, right? Getting together and having a running club is not biblical community. God hates that. You shouldn't do that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) What you're looking for is this. When I leave this group, did they press into me? Did they press into me? Got in a fight with my kid. Told him I was sorry. Wait a minute. I know you said the words. Did you actually repent? Did you actually reach for your kid's heart? or were you just kind of done that night? See? Gave the guy five bucks at the gas station doing what Jeff said. Wait a minute. Was five bucks a sacrifice for you? Five bucks is five bucks. Come on. I mean, it's great. I want the guy at the gas station to have money too, but are you actually living a generous life? See? Yeah, you know, got in a fight and I've been, you know, trying to change my habits, so I only looked at porn once this week and then I went to work and I wait a minute, wait. Did you just drop the porn bomb and then try to skip it? See, there's a press in. Wait a minute, I heard you and we're actually friends, and I actually love you and you love me, and I'm gonna leverage, I'm gonna lean into your life because we there's some godliness so if the outcome of those relationship is not love for Christ and love for neighbors and good deeds, that's not biblical community. It's community. It's great. I mean, we don't get to, we don't pray every time we get together with our friends and have a Bible study and fast. You know, we like to goof off too. But there are intentional designated meetings and relationships that are there to press into these things. And God would look at us and say, my people do that stuff. They're marked by those things. They love each other in that way. They value those things. And it causes them to follow me and love me and love their neighbor more and more. Okay? All right. Band's gonna come out. Let me pray for us. Think about this a little bit. Jesus, love you. Thanks for loving us. Help us with this, God. It. It's difficult. I, I, I really believe you have to change our heart for us to value and care about this stuff. So, would you do that? Would you start there? Draw us to yourself and soften our hearts and our minds so that we want to be more and more like you. And then, God, in our friendships, help us to deepen them. This is who we are now, it's what we do, it's our identity. So God, would you, would you press into that so that I would want this, want to know your heart, want to know your mind, want to live the life you call me to live. God, connect us, help us. God, if this is something that used to be a part of our life and we've pushed it off and just not dealt with it for whatever reason, we put up some barrier, would you convict us of that? Would you show us that? Would you motivate us? Would you inspire us anew? And uh, God, bring this out in us any way that that we're willing to let you. Do that now in these still moments, Jesus. Change us, draw us to you in your name. Amen.